Hello, my name is Simon Stokes. Uh, it's good to see you, good to be with you this morning. I'm not a pastor on staff here, but I uh, am a pastor in the area. I work for a ministry called Reformed University Fellowship at UNC. And if you could turn with page to page 900 for me, um, in your pew Bible. But I just wanted to say, uh, man, I'm excited to be here with you all this morning um, to get to open up God's word, to worship with you all. If you're visiting here, um, and you want to get more plugged in with Good Shepherd, or you want to try to find out more about what it means to be a part of this community, um, please see Chris or me or someone else, and we'd be happy to connect you. Um, but, and just serve you in any way we can serve you. Um, to, but today, we're starting a new sermon series. And in the Gospels, what happens is the first parts of the Gospels tend to be Jesus' teaching, and episodes where Jesus is healing and doing things. And they go pretty quickly through the three years of his ministry. And then it goes into slow motion. And John's gospel really does that. The first 12 chapters of John's gospel takes place over three years. The four chapters that we're going to go into this uh, spring up through Easter takes place in one night. So it goes into slow motion. But we're looking at this because we want to see the heart of Jesus. And this section called the Upper Room Discourse that we're going to study is looking at Jesus' heart as he pours it out on his disciples right before he's about to leave them. And it's full of practical teaching about what does it mean to know God and know Jesus. But it's also full of just the deep sense of what it's like to be with Jesus and to be really known by Jesus and seen by Jesus. And we need that. And so we're going to stay in it and meditate on it and sit in it and ask ourselves, what does it mean to know God in this way and to move out into Durham and Chapel Hill having had this experience of Jesus? So I'm going to read today's scripture. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to get started. This is John 13, 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon said to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had finished, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
Let's pray and we'll get started. Um, Jesus, what a beautiful, beautiful picture of your heart and what it is to know you and be your disciple. God, I thank you that this isn't just true, but it's good and it's beautiful and it's given to us so that we would know you in your goodness and your beauty and your truth. God, woo our hearts, sway our hearts to know you and to hear you and to listen to you and be transformed by you this morning. God, meet us however we come into this building, whether tired and needing refreshment, whether wounded and needed healing, whether dead and needing life. God, meet us and wash us and show us your light in our darkness. In your name we pray, amen. How do you clean someone up when they failed? How do you clean someone up when they failed? The San Antonio Spurs are one of the best all-time NBA teams. They've won five NBA championships in the last 42 years, which is pretty good, but one of their worst losses came in 2013 when they were playing in Miami against LeBron. And they were in game six. They were totally expected to win. It seemed like a, such a sure thing that whoever's job it was to bring the championship trophy that night brought it, fully expecting to give it to the Spurs. And they came so close. But then LeBron did what LeBron does. And he put it away for the heat. And at the end of the night, the Spurs were devastated. I mean, these are professional athletes who hate to lose at checkers. But they had lost in the NBA championship on a global stage, fully expecting to win, and they were just grown men on the verge of tears. And their coach, Greg Popovich, who is this gruff, tough-as-nails guy, said, all right, everybody to the bus, we're going to eat. So he takes them to the restaurant that they had been expecting to celebrate the night in, gets there a little bit early, and he starts ordering appetizers and wine and circling chairs up. And as every player comes to the door, he greets them with a hug and a glass of wine and a joke and a handshake. And they all sat and they ate together. And it was sort of like he was the father of the bride at a wedding feast instead of the coach of a losing team. He's laughing with people. He's telling stories, shaming no one about their loss or their failure. Finally, towards the end of the night, they talk about the game and they draw it out and some people cried. Some people laughed. Everybody was loved. And at the end of the night, the CEO of the Spurs, who'd been at the game and then came to the restaurant, said that this was the single greatest thing that he'd ever seen in sports, bar none. That year, the Spurs lost the championship but Popovich won the love of his players because he cleansed them and their failure. And the next year they came back and they were crowned the NBA champions. How do you clean someone up when they failed? When we failed, we are tempted to run or to hide or to despair, to blame God, to blame other people, to blame our circumstances. But instead... What Jesus is calling us to in this passage is discipleship. To lean into the cleansing that only he can give and to learn from him that special alchemy of God's kingdom. How to turn failure and what feels like nothingness and loss into the substance of glory and victory in the kingdom of God. So this morning what I want to do is I want to look at this text and just ask two questions. 
What has Jesus done? And what does he call us to do? What has he done? What does he call us to do? So first, what has Jesus done? Well, look at the context in which this takes place. Look at verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John is a great writer. And he's given us two clues to set the stage for what this meal is about. The first clue is that this is the Passover. It's the celebration of God freeing his people from slavery in Egypt by telling them to kill a lamb and put its blood over their doorway so when the angel of death came by to kill the firstborn of Egypt, it would see the blood and it would pass over their house and they would live. You could look at that and say, okay, well, great. I mean, Jesus is a good Jewish guy. He celebrates the Passover every year like we celebrate Christmas. I mean, it rolls through the calendar. He's celebrating it again. What's significant about that? But John also says that Jesus knew that it was his hour. In John's gospel, the word hour is a loaded term. It's not just about the time of the day. It's the time to which Jesus is known that his life is headed. It's the time of his death on a cross. So Jesus is sitting there eating the Passover and he knows it's his time to accomplish a greater Passover. The Passover to which that first Passover pointed when God would free his people from their true enemies, sin and death. It's his hour and the grandfather clock in his mind is going off and going bong, bong, bong. He knows that he's the lamb that came to be slaughtered and die so that his people would live. And he's sitting there and he knows it's time for that to happen. I mean, there's a roast lamb on the table and he must be looking at that meal and thinking, that's me. That's what it's about to happen to me. Never did a host so identify with the meal as Jesus does here in this moment. It's dark, right? But then John tightens the screws even more. Look at verse two. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus knows he's gonna be arrested and put through a sham trial and executed. And not only that, but he's gonna be betrayed by his disciple and all the disciples, all the people at this table with him are going to abandon him. In just these first verses, John is telling us Jesus is about to hurt because these people are about to fail. He's pressed in and close to death and he knows it. He's hyper aware of it. That the wrath of God is going to fall on him like an atom bomb. And humanly speaking, that will come in large part because the people that are right in front of him. Look, when you and I have some big thing hanging over our head, a big test or paper, an interview for a job or an internship, a massive presentation, or just a hard conversation. That's all we can think about, right? Like, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? How will I make it through this surgery or this trial or seeing them eyeball to eyeball? Like, pastorally for me, the worst 15 minutes of my week are the ones right before I have to preach. Because all I can do is think about myself. But what do you see about Jesus as he comes to his hour? He gets this hyper clarity about who he is, about where he's come from, where he's going, and what he is there to do. Look at verse 3. 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus is at his hour and he's pouring out his heart to these guys who he knows are about to betray him. He's comforting them so that they aren't afraid, so that they can make sense of what's about to come. I mean, it's this callback to the very beginning of John where the light is shining in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And as this is happening, he's showing them exactly who God is. He's bringing them into his own clarity about himself. The next chapter, John 14, has Jesus talking and he says, I'm about to go away and you know the way to go. And Thomas says, Lord, no, we don't. How can we go? Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. And you can almost picture the apostles saying, uh, have you seen God? Like when I went out on that falafel run, was there like a God sighting that I missed out on? Because I'm not sure that I've seen him. And Philip chimes in. He says, show us the Father and it's enough. Jesus' response is incredible. Have I been with you all this time and you don't know who I am, Philip? If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. When you see Jesus talking, thinking, feeling, acting, you're not just seeing the most obedient man ever or the person who exhibited the most sacrificial love in history. You're seeing the very character and nature of the living God. And here at his hour, Jesus is turning that up to 11 and pouring it out onto these men. Like this is one of the many, many moments in the gospels where if your demand on God is that he feels like you feel or thinks like you think or acts like you act, then Christianity is really gonna challenge you for all the right reasons. It challenges our expectations of who God is of how he acts, how he feels about us. Because when we come to our hour, the moment of greatest pain or confusion or challenge, none of us is thinking about how we can help or comfort other people. We're thinking about how do we receive comfort? How can someone step into this and make sense of my confusion? But when Jesus comes to this moment, he gains a hyper clarity of who he is and his mission and his purpose and how it's gonna happen. And he empties himself of any kind of dignity or glory and honor. And he takes position of a servant. So he can pour himself out and he can love the people who are about to betray him. For those of us who grew up with this stuff, we kind of think like, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course he's doing this. It's Jesus. This is his deal. That's what he's about. You can kind of be inoculated to something like this. But imagine you're in the room and you have no idea this is about to happen. Like, I don't care how close you are to your friends. If you were at Christmas dinner with somebody and you ate this big meal and at the end of it, they stripped down to their underwear and said, okay, I'm gonna wash your feet. You'd feel a little weird about that. And feet in our culture aren't even that big of a deal. Here, they're the most repulsive part of a person that you can talk about. There's no record in ancient history of any leader 
doing anything like this for anyone below them. It's an act that Jews didn't even let their Jewish servants do for them. They made Gentiles do it because they thought it was so icky. And it totally freaks the disciples out, right? Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And then classic over-the-top Peter, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Right, like, you'll never wash my feet. Ah, wash all of me. This is so us. Like, Jesus approaches us. He comes close to the parts of us that, man, I don't want people to deal with. I don't want to talk about. I don't want to see. And we push him back. I mean, this is everybody. Brene Brown, a sociologist in Texas who specializes in researching the experience of shame, has said that the experience of shame, the sense that I haven't just made a mistake, but that I am a mistake, is one of the hallmarks of the human condition. And the, the, the big question that we all have to face is how will we deal with that? Because you can't work it away, and you can't drink it away, and however well your family is doing, you can't push it away. But the promise that Jesus is giving us here is that when you hand him your shame and your guilt, what feels like the dirtiest parts of you, that he will wash it away. Like Peter, this is just so hard for us. Like Jesus, wash my head, wash my hands, wash the stuff where I wanna look good and acceptable, the things that I'm okay talking about or that I want other people to see, wash those things. But Jesus, stay in your Bible stories. Show me some things that I can do to be a nicer person. Put your finger on the big injustice in the world that I already don't like. Forgive me for amorphous, generic things. But Jesus, do not wash the most painful, most cynical, dirtiest parts of me that I would never let anyone else touch. Do not wash my fantasies. Do not wash my business practices. Do not wash my angry outburst. I will bend the knee to you everywhere else, but do not touch these things. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. What Jesus is doing is showing us that the first thing we need from God is not a mentor or a coach or a teacher or a good example, though he is all those things. But the first thing that we need from him is to be washed. And only he can do that. He will go to embarrassing, humiliating links to wash us. Because you know what this is a picture of, don't you? When he eats the Passover meal and strips down to his underwear and washes his disciples' feet, what he's showing them is the cross. All of his wisdom, all of his power and his dignity and his leadership abilities, a life devoted entirely to serving God and the people in his life are so that he can come to his hour and be stripped naked and be humiliated and take the wrath of God for our sins. That he will leave the bowl of water in that room so that he can take up a cross in the street. He'll be crucified in a garbage dump that doubles as a cemetery. The picture here is he's washing their feet with water. But the reality that he wants to push them towards is he will wash their souls with his blood. And if that sounds extreme and shocking and humiliating, both for the one who's doing it and the one who's receiving it, it is because it is. But the medicine has to be strong because the disease is awful. 
And for nearly a decade, this church has talked a lot about real Jesus and real people. I don't know how maybe you've filled in the specifics of that in your heart, but this is the real Jesus. And this is what he does with real people like you and me that he empties himself of power and privilege to get on his knees and make dirty people clean. And the requirement to come in and be cleansed is both very simple and very hard. It's simple because all that's needed to say is, yes, yes, I, like, I'm dirty, make me clean. But it's hard because we have to own that dirt. and have to say, that's part of my heart. I've done that. I've said that. That is me. We tend to want to pull back and cower from him in those places. But when you feel that way, and you will, look at this story. Because if Jesus is willing to go to the bottom to wash the darkest, dirtiest, most problematic parts of us, then he must really love people like us. Not because of anything that's in us, but because of everything that's in him. He must love dirty, hard-to-love people. You know, when I got married... I married into a family where I got a little cousin and she was five and she was super sweet and super kind and very cute. And I knew that she was all those things for lots of reasons, but how I really knew it was that she had this baby doll that was called Bebe. And Bebe at some point in its life had had a body and arms and legs and I, I'm guessing clothes. But by the time I married into the family, Bebe was this disembodied head they got carried around by these nasty, tight, patchy, gold dreadlocks. And she had one eye that was permanently closed, another eye that was forever looking in this direction. And, you know, it was high-octane nightmare fuel, is what Bebe was. <laughs> but I saw Bebe, and I knew that my cousin was kind because she would kiss Bebe and sleep with Bebe and eat meals with Bebe. And when Uncle Simon came to visit, he had to kiss Bebe. Bebe never left her side. That baby doll was dearly beloved, not because of anything that was in it, but because of the little girl who loved it. And we all have parts of our lives that feel like Bebe. Too broken, too ugly, too dirty to be loved. But Jesus does the same thing with us. God's people are dearly loved by Jesus, not because of them and what they can do or how they look, but because of his love and his compassion and his willingness to go all the way to the bottom to cleanse them and make them whole. And if this is who Jesus is when he's pressed to his hour, then it means he can be trusted with the parts of your heart and your story to the dirtiest, most problematic parts of you and he can truly, really wash you and make you clean. If that's what Jesus has done, how should we live then as people have been washed? Look at verse 12 with me. When he'd washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I really, really want you to hear this. 
I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Here's a basic principle for you from the Bible, something you can keep and put in your back pocket and walk around with for the rest of your life. But God's actions reveal who God is. And if God acts to reveal himself, then we're called to respond to that action by reflecting God's action. That's why in the Old Testament, you can have things like, be holy, for I am holy. Like, respond to me in this way. Or love the orphan and the sojourner, because that's what you were when you were in Egypt, and no one was a father to you, and you had no country, but now I'm your father, and I've given you this country. Respond to me in the way that I've treated you. And now as Jesus gives these men a picture of what the cross will do, what does he say to his disciples? What I've done to you, do to one another. If I've washed you, taught you, listened to you, loved you, and you understand this, then do it amongst yourselves. Do you know what keeps us from getting close enough to wash others or letting them wash us? Shame. Guilt. The sense that I'm too, too dirty. I'm too bad to wash People who feel dirty are afraid to let other people near them. But that's why we come here and we sing these songs, we pray these prayers, we go home, we read the Bible, we jump into a community group. It's not just about a bunch of religious stuff, but it's to be with Jesus, to be reminded of what Jesus has done to us, to be washed by Jesus, to proclaim Jesus, the only one who can make dirty people clean and like Jesus, who... When he was crystal clear on his identity, washed others. When we are clear on who Jesus is, then we know who we are and what we should do. And if you're here and this is you and Jesus hasn't just comforted you, but has washed you, then you are called to love and serve and wash the people in your life who don't deserve it and who can never pay you back for it and who may not even understand what you're doing while you're doing it because that's what he's done for you. And it just begs the question, right, of who is that person in your life? And maybe it's someone you work with or a hard-to-love spouse or a sibling or a neighbor. I don't know who that is for you. But what I do know is there are a lot of dirty feet, which means there's a lot of opportunities to wash those feet. And that can be listening to someone like you want to be listened to, That can be writing them a note and saying essentially, hey, I see you. I see what you're going through. You're not alone. Jesus washes people like us all the time. That can be forgiving someone and moving toward them before they've done anything like that for you. But however Jesus has loved you, however he's humbled himself and emptied himself to wash you, do this to one another. And when you do, you'll be blessed by him Because you'll become like him. And you'll be giving another person who is broken like you and hurt like you and sinned like you something of what you've gotten from Jesus. Listen, the church is always just dirty people who've gotten washed, inviting other people to the only place where they can get clean, to Jesus. And while I'm up here and I've got a mic, can I make a friendly suggestion? If you're part of a community group, And it may not always be the case here, but it seems like typically community groups will discuss the Sunday sermon as their content for their group. 
whether that's your group or not, can I suggest that more than just talking about this sermon, that you as a group would open this passage and read it together and ask the question, what does it mean for this group to wash feet? Maybe that's within your group. Maybe that's within your neighborhood or the church. However you answer it, that's up to you. But don't leave the question hanging. Answer the question, how do we wash feet? And if you're not yet in a community group, then go home and read this as a family. Or read it with your roommate and ask it together. How do we wash feet? Because if Jesus has done this for you, I don't assume that's everyone in this room, but if he's done it for you, we have to move towards one another. We have to wash feet because this is what he's done for us. I heard a story about a guy who'd grown up in a really great Christian home. And they were one of those homes where like, they were not super strict, but they set good boundaries, full of love, full of laughter, good teaching. But he leaves home for college and he punts on all of it. Like every good thing they taught him, punted it. Every right way they taught him to go, punted on that. He goes off the rails. But then summer rolls around and he's got no money. So he has to go back home to live with his parents. And he's working this fast food job during the day and partying pretty hard at night. And he comes in one night and he's pretty drunk. And he barely stumbles into the door and his stomach turns and he gets sick all over the kitchen. It's everywhere. And whether his parents heard that or not, or they've just been staying up, waiting for him, suddenly click, and the kitchen light turns on, and they come in and they see the mess that he's made. And he's so embarrassed that instead of apologizing, he goes after them. And he starts this mean, name-calling fight. And after about 30 minutes of this, he stomps upstairs and goes to his bedroom. And he lays down on his bed, and he's listening to his parents clean up his mess in the kitchen. And he has this kind of moment of clarity, like you sometimes do after you've had a fight. And you feel terrible about it, and you're sitting there thinking about it. And he's remembering all the things he said over and over and over again. And all the things he's done. And he is just way beyond the pale, and he feels terrible about it. But he's also so embarrassed about it that he's not going to go down there and say anything. But his mom finishes cleaning up his mess in the kitchen. And she comes up to check on him. And she can kind of tell by the way that he's laying in the bed that he's still awake. And so she comes and she sits on the edge of his bed and she starts to gently rub his back. And she says, son, son, do you know that you're still a child of God? And just tears, right? Because when she was doing that, she wasn't just cleaning the kitchen. She's washing his feet. And that's what God does for us all the time. He sees the way that we cover stuff up. He sees our mess and our guilt, and our shame. And he approaches us in our darkness, and he washes us. And if that's your story, then wash other people's feet. And if that's not yet your story, God loves to give that all the time. All you have to do is ask him for it, and he'll give it to you right now. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I pray Lord, I pray that you would help us to see what it means for you to clean us up and to wash us in our failure and our guilt and our shame. Lord, we don't have anything that we can bring before you that would make us beautiful or lovely or good in your eyes. 
So Lord, I pray that you would give us those things. Lord, be our beauty and be our goodness and be our righteousness. And Lord, wash us and make us clean. In your name we pray, amen.